Hi guys, and welcome back to my podcast, After Dark. My name is Allison, and like the title says, in this podcast we're going to be looking into some of the strange, crazy, and disturbing things people do after dark. This includes things like heists, robberies, murders, serial killers, and more, so if you're interested in stuff like that, stick around. In these cases, we're going to be looking at where, when, and why these crimes were committed, and if the case was ever solved, or if it remains a mystery to this day. Not sure exactly when this episode is coming out, but hopefully I'm getting better at managing these and it isn't taking too long. But with that being said, I actually did a poll for today's episode, and we're going to be covering the Jennings 8, or also called the Jeff Davis 8, which is a Louisiana case where eight women's bodies were found in swamps and canals surrounding Jennings, Louisiana from the year 2005 to 2009, so four-year span. But hope you guys enjoy! It's actually a book called Murder in the Bayou, Who Killed the Women Known as the Jeff Davis Eight by Ethan Brown that investigates this case. And actually did like a little small five-part documentary series based on the book and aired on Showtime and it was just called Murder in the Bayou. But sadly, I do not have a Hulu membership and purchasing and then reading the book and making this podcast would take a very long time. So to spare you guys from having to wait, I'm going to make this episode using good old-fashioned research. (laughs) Let me set the scene of Jennings, Louisiana for you guys. It's more of a rural community that's plagued with unemployment, drugs, prostitution, class division, corruption, and collusion. Players, pimps, and kingpins. Um, And a local patrolman puts it pretty well calling it a place of sin. But so now that we have a bit of scenery, let's begin. The first victim was found on May 20th, 2005, and it was that of 28-year-old Loretta Lynn Chison Lewis. Ugh, I feel bad for substitute teachers, because now I understand how hard it is to read people's names. But her decomposed body was found by a fisherman floating in a canal on the edge of Jennings in the Jefferson Davis Parish of southwest Louisiana. Loretta was a prostitute and known to have been struggling with a crack addiction, and it was believed her death was due to a drug trade that went wrong, so there wasn't really a ton of investigation that went into her murder, it seemed like. And as I said, her body was decomposed, and... It is possible that in water, human bodies can be completely skeletonized within four days, and that is under certain conditions, but that means Lerda's body was most likely in that canal for multiple days, and therefore died multiple days prior to when she was found. But not even a month later, on June 18th, they discovered the body of Ernestine Marie Daniels Patterson, also in a canal off a highway south of Jennings. She was a 30-year-old prostitute, and which let me be clear that it's not something to shame these women for but with Loretta her body had been decomposed and it was hard to determine the cause of death this was not the case for Ernestine because coroners and pretty much anyone would be able to determine that her cause of death was the fact that her throat had been slit (laughs) so they did actually arrest two men in relation to her second degree murder so at least there seemed to be more of like an investigation going on, but the charges against them were eventually dropped and the men were released. Almost two years later, which is a very long time considering the first two victims appeared within a month, they found 
21-year-old Kristen Gary Lopez dead in a canal. And there seems to be a bit of a theme going on with the locations of the bodies here. But in Kristen's case, there are also two suspects arrested. Frankie Richard, who was Jennings' local pimp, and his niece Hannah Connor. But just like before, they were also let go due to inconclusive evidence. And it seems weird to me that the same outcome happened in both Ernestine and Kristen's case. Almost like someone was trying to cover up for the suspects and get them out of trouble, but I don't know. Just a thought. Over the next year and a half, the bodies of four more women were discovered. 26-year-old Whitney Du Bois, 23-year-old Laconia Brown, who, along with Ernestine, also had her throat slit, 24-year-old Crystal Zeno, and 17-year-old Brittany Gary. All of them prostitutes found in or near Jennings. Their bodies were also decomposed, so determining the cause of death was difficult, but they found no signs of trauma and ultimately believed they died to asphyxia, or basically suffocation, where your brain is just deprived of oxygen for too long. And then in August of 2009, the eighth and final body of 26-year-old Nicole Guillory was spotted off I-10 near Acadia Parish. In December of 2008, after seven women were found dead, which isn't a thing that I think should be taken lightly, but the police finally decided to form a task force of local law enforcement agencies to investigate the murders. This was obviously like reassuring to some people, hearing that the police were actively investigating, but it really didn't seem like they were doing much. Nicole Guillory was found dead almost a whole year after this task force was formed. So not only did law enforcement fail to prevent her death, they really didn't come up with any new leads or information in any of the other cases. After her death, police announced that they believed the murders to be the work of one person, a serial killer. Which, just considering what I've only told you already, just seems kind of unlikely to me. Yes, the victims were all women and prostitutes with known drug addictions, and they're all kind of found in similar areas and canals. But they ranged from 17 to 30 years old, which is a pretty decent age range, and I feel like a lot of serial killers target specific victims. And there wasn't like a combined factor in how these women looked, Some had long hair, some had short, some were blondes, brunettes, black hair. So if it was like a single person, looks didn't really matter to them. There were also really long and really short gaps between murders. Um, I don't think there's many serial killers who go from killing two victims in the span of a month to waiting two years for killing their next victim. And then the fact that two women had their throats slit while all the others died of suffocation doesn't really sit right with me. Serial killers don't usually just change their method of killing. They kind of like to stick to one thing. So if I had to take a guess, I would say there's at least two people involved. One who slit Ernestine's and Laconia's throats, and then one or more people who suffocated the other woman. After Nicole's death, the task force more than doubled the reward for information about the killer, putting out flyers stating this and now referring to the woman as the Jeff Davis 8 or Jennings 8. The case started to gain national media attention, and in 2010, the New York Times did a piece detailing the anger and fear felt by the victim's family members 
and they also reported mistakes that the local law enforcement made in the investigation of these crimes. In the article, they stated how the chief investigator had bought a truck from an inmate who was a known friend of one of the victims, Kristen Lopez, and later a witness would see Kristen in the truck the day of her disappearance, which is pretty sketchy, but what's even more suspicious is that when they went to go investigate and then like inspect the truck it had already been like completely washed and resold and i feel like to anyone who heard that information they would automatically consider him a suspect but his only punishment was being fined and taken off the case and just put in charge of evidence at the parish sheriff's office which i don't know i don't even feel like he was really questioned or investigated that thoroughly so i don't know what this law enforcement is doing here in Louisiana. So I wasn't the only one who found this police investigation suspicious, though, because after reading that article from the New York Times, Ethan Brown, a journalist from New Orleans, decided to visit Jennings and conduct his own investigation in mid-2011. He did a lot of research interviewing family members of the victims, possible suspects, officers on the task force, and also examined public records. What he found was a lot of evidence pointing to the death of these women, not from a serial killer, but actually the work of a very big and complex cover-up by the police and other authorities. He found that the victims pretty much all knew each other, and knew each other pretty well. Kristen Lopez and Brittany Gary were actually cousins, and Brittany lived with Crystal Benoit, I don't know how to say the last name, Um, but she lived together with them for a bit right before her death. All of the girls kind of struggled with poverty, mental illness, addiction, and prostitution, and they shared their struggles with each other. They were all also police informants at one point or another. A lot of relatives told Ethan Brown that many of the girls seemed anxious or scared before their disappearance, and that they knew they couldn't rely on the police to protect them. More evidence of the police being pretty shady about all of this Um, Going back to 2007, two inmates gave up information to Sergeant Jesse Jesse Ewing about the truck Kristen Lopez was seen in before her disappearance, and details about it being sold to the investigator and then being scrubbed clean and resold. This was all on tape, and Sergeant Ewing started to become really suspicious of his colleagues, and he actually sent the tapes to the regional FBI office. And I don't know if the people in the FBI office didn't get the memo, or whatever, but maybe maybe there was an inside person in the FBI, I don't know, because the tapes just got sent back to the task force investigating the crimes, and then really soon after, Sergeant Ewing was fired, which totally does not seem like they're trying to cover their tracks. Like, if they're really innocent and not involved in the deaths, they would have just cleared their names right then and there when he became suspicious, but nope, the moment someone doubted them, he was immediately fired. Their sheriff, Ricky Edwards, who was supposed to be in charge and lead them, follow the laws and all those good things, you know, that (laughs) come with being sheriff. Yeah, he was no better. He was sheriff for almost 20 years, really cracking down on drug, drugs, like intercepting them and increasing random searches along a big highway, I-10, which actually provided many successful drug seizures, which that all seems fine and dandy, regular police work, but... According to Brown's sources, those drugs were just put right back onto the streets by other police officers in exchange for money, sex, or information. 
So they do all this work to try and prevent the spread of drug use in their town, but then they just end up feeding people's addiction, which, you know, kind of seems like one of those reasons people say ACAB. <laughs> but, um, these police officers, they just keep getting more and more questionable. Because one of their members, David Barry, was identified as a murder suspect by multiple witnesses. Like, you're telling me they literally trusted him, a criminal, in a police office to solve other crimes. Like, how does that make sense? I really hope this whole department was just, like, fired and completely replaced, because obviously there is a shit ton of corruption going on. Barry's MO as a murderer was to cruise around the south side with his wife looking for prostitutes, and they would then roofie the women and take them back to their house and sex room, and I'm assuming then rape and kill them. And I guess the task force did not find this interesting enough because he was only interviewed once despite all of these accusations against him. A few years later, he died in 2010, so Ethan Brown did not get to interview him. But, you know, I will just say good riddance. I'm pretty sure the world is going to be a better place without him. But overall, just the police officers in this department were not good people. Either they themselves did criminal activities or, like, encouraged them or they turn a blind eye to others committing crimes. So, and also many of them could all be found in like crack houses, trailers, and motels frequented by prostitutes. So it kind of seems like they were committing more crimes than they were stopping them. A prime suspect of Brown's investigation was Frankie Richard, a crack addict, pimp, and former strip club owner who was sexually involved with most of the victims even pimping three of them out of the Bordeaux Inn, a motel that was basically just a den of sin, filled with drugs, sex, and alcohol, all that fun stuff. <laughs> Even though he had multiple previous crimes under his belt, being suspected of several homicides and just lots of allegations connecting him to some of the murders, he was free to basically do whatever he wanted. The police weren't holding or even surveilling him. In his book, Ethan Brown basically said that Frankie had kind of an unspoken deal with the police where he would provide them drugs, information, and pimp out girls to them for immunity to just basically do his illegal activities and businesses. <laughs> in the 1990s, he invested in some strip clubs, um, but people could hire him there as kind of an enforcer, he says, and that he's quoted saying, if somebody wanted a leg broke and they gave me $500, you can bet tomorrow you'd be wearing a fucking cast. <laughs> so, he was also one of the last known people to be seen with Kristen Lopez before she disappeared, and he's been connected to the sheriff's office who's involved in covering this all up. Um, they cleaned and resold the truck that I mentioned earlier because of a request from Frankie, actually. So... If he wasn't involved, I mean, why would he be asking them to clean it? But, yeah. Um, Ethan's book, in, like, in his investigation, kind of really struck a nerve with the police and Jennings. I mean, obviously, they didn't want what he was writing to come out. Um, the new sheriff, Ivy Woods, called him an author of fiction stories, trying to discredit his work and claim it as false and exaggerated to cover up the truth. He also had a contact tell him that he'd heard more than once that, quote, he'll never get that book out, end quote. Well, that really just made me feel like Shane and Ryan from BuzzFeed Unsolved right there. But anyways, his contact told him to take that however he wants, but there's definitely kind of a malicious undertone there. 
like someone doesn't want the be the book to be published and will go to whatever lengths needed to ensure it doesn't probably giving him like a similar fate as the same eight women he's investigating but he actually didn't go back to Jennings for a while to finish his interview because of these threats obviously he's scared and I mean with the right to be I would be scared um I'm sure a lot of people didn't want him to publish that book so it's hard to kind of distinguish who you're interviewing and how they feel about you he had like a library of information that could ruin people's jobs reputations even their whole lives I wouldn't put it past the police who covered up these eight murders to kill a journalist after everything they've done A very prominent person's reputation that Ethan Brown's book ruined is that of Charles Botany. Charles Botany was a Louisiana congressman, and the book Murder in the Bayou, Who Killed the Woman Known as the Jeff Davis Eight, which was published in 2016, exposed the congressman for owning, and I quote, a notoriously seedy hotel where he allegedly had sex with three of the victims. I don't know if CD is just a common Louisiana Louisiana slang or something, but I don't think I've ever heard anything be described as CD till now. So if some of you guys are in the same boat as me, it means sordid, disreputable, sleazy, stuff like that. So it's not a good thing to be described as, that's for sure. Charles obviously really did not like that this information was getting out about him, especially when he was running for a Senate seat with pretty good competition, so he filed a defamation lawsuit against Brown and his publisher. He later dropped it in December when he lost the Senate race, but let's just consider for a moment if he hadn't. Firstly, defamation lawsuits are really expensive, and they take a long time because there's a lot of fact-checking involved and usually requires the help of an expert. His lawsuit would basically be saying that what Brown wrote in his book was false and that he didn't own the hotel or didn't have sex with the victim, something like that. And I'm sure it's easily provable that he does in fact own the hotel. Like, there's obviously going to be financial records with his name, stuff like that. I can't really ask the victims if they had sex with him, obviously. They're dead, but Brown would have had to get his information from somewhere. So there's people out there who either witnessed it or were told about the encounters and then told Brown about them. So if an expert were to come and fact check those claims, they would probably also interview people in Jennings and probably the same ones that Brown did. And I don't think they would have lied to him. They were seeking justice for the victims and that's what they believe the book would do. So they would probably tell the truth. And if it's the truth, they would have to say that in court if they were called to testify because perjury is a crime. So... All this is basically to say that even if he had continued the defamation case, I don't think he would have won. It's not a fiction book, and I'm more inclined to side with Brown rather than a senator who is probably connected to the case of eight dead women. So we talked about Ethan Brown, his investigation, and he kind of revealed that this was a police cover-up. The police killed these women. But why these women, though? What reason was there to kill all eight of them over the span of four years? It's thought that Kristen Lopez, who seems to be very prominent in the story, was a witness at the police raid of Harvey Berlay's house, along with multiple other people who were related to the Jennings 8 case who were there, when police shot and killed a drug dealer named Leonard Crochet in 2005. So what, though? Why does it matter that they were there? 
that alone isn't really a reason to want them dead. Harvey was another prescription drug dealer in Jennings, whose house was just a few blocks south of Frankie Richards. On the night of April 20th, 2005, the police, who had been tipped off by an associate of Harvey's that Leonard was refusing to traffic the drugs, raided the house, shooting and killing Leonard Crochet, claiming he was holding a gun and it was necessary for their safety. The grand jury investigated the shooting and found nothing wrong with the deadly force police used. So, great. They didn't do anything bad. There's no issue, right? Wrong. Um, A Louisiana State Police investigation into Leonard Crochet's death actually revealed that he was unarmed when police shot and killed him. So, there's our motive for killing these women. Kristen Lopez, Alvin Bootsy Lewis, who had a child with Whitney Du Bois, the fourth victim, and was the brother-in-law of the first victim, Loretta Lewis, as well as other people related to the case and possibly other victims, witnessed a wrongful killing of an unarmed man by police, and those officers just couldn't have that. They didn't want their lives, careers, and reputations ruined by this, so they had to silence these women. Could they have maybe just bribed or blackmailed them? Yes, and that probably would have been a lot easier. But instead, they targeted these women over the course of four years, starting exactly a month after the original shooting. And I'm sure that was terrifying for these girls, seeing them go one by one, knowing that one day they would probably come for you, and you're just living in fear that whole time until then. The police went to all this effort to kill these women, cover up their deaths, and then create a task force to supposedly investigate the disappearances to, you know, not draw attention to themselves. But in reality, they just made it worse for themselves because they had this big case that could have been the work of a serial killer and it drew the attention of the whole nation. This scandal wasn't contained in their small Louisiana town anymore. And that news coverage reached probably the worst person it could have from the police department, Ethan Brown. He came into Jennings determined to give these women justice, and even after he received threats, he still went back and investigated more. And then he wrote an article and a book about the case, and then a small series was produced about it, and suddenly everyone knows that this wasn't really the work of a serial killer. It's the case of corrupt cops trying to cover up their mistakes. On the exact same day that Ethan Brown published his book, which is January 31st, 2014, they discovered the body of 27-year-old Lacey Fontenot in Jefferson Davis town of Lake Arthur. And the police department denies any connection between her and the Jennings 8 victims, even though she associated with many of them. So could she be another victim? Who knows, maybe it should be the Jennings 9 case instead. Or was her death completely unrelated? Um, It's frustrating because it's pretty clear that there was a lot of corruption going on in this case, but I don't think anyone was ever really charged or sentenced, and there wasn't a clear confession, so technically this case does remain unsolved, even though we have a pretty good idea of what happened. There's a quote from Ethan Brown that I liked from an interview with The Advocate where he says, To me, justice is nobody having to live the way in which these women lived. That's a greater justice to me than just, okay, we're going to slap some handcuffs on some people. This is not to say that people didn't love him. It's to say that the way in which they lived this life so beyond hard scrapple. Where do I get a cheese sandwich today? Where do I rest my head today? 
that nobody has to live that way again. That's, to me, the true justice. And I sincerely hope that those police officers would live the rest of their lives filled with guilt and regret for what they did. And I hope everyone knows how disgusting of people they really are. And they don't get to hide in anonymity anymore. We see them and know what they did. It's not a secret anymore. Well, that's all I have for the Jennings 8 case. I hope you guys found it interesting. It's a little bit different than some of the other stories I covered so far. I did do a better job at managing this one with school, so hopefully I can keep that up, but just bear with me a little longer. The information I used in this podcast was taken from biography.com, wikipedia, and 64parishes.org. If you like these episodes, these sources, and any other sources that I've used before cover lots of other true crime stories and other topics that I highly recommend you check out if you want to. Once again, thank you for listening to my podcast, After Dark. My name is Allison, and I hope you all have a great day, and I'll see you in the next episode. Bye.